Hello, welcome to Navigating the Pandemic, Past, Present, and Future, the show that explores the novel coronavirus and how it impacts our daily lives. I'm your host, Kat, and today we're going to talk about public health law and the history of pandemics in the U.S., mental health and wellness during quarantine, and super spreading, where we discuss the drivers exacerbating the spread of COVID-19. Today on the show, I'll be speaking with Professor Polly Price, who is an Asa Griggs Candler Professor of Law and is also a Professor of Global Health in the Rollins School of Public Health here at Emory. We'll be discussing the coronavirus pandemic through the lens of public health law, epidemics, and government. Thank you so much for taking time to share your expertise with us, Professor Price. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Will you sort of provide a brief introduction and background of your work with global health law and epidemics? Yes, I have worked with uh, state and local public health agencies, as well as the CDC for a number of years, primarily on tuberculosis control. We, we don't typically think of that in the US as an epidemic uh, because the numbers are relatively small. But I began working uh, with a group that had legal issues arose with respect to uh, treating tuberculosis patients, particularly in a cross-border context. So at the U.S.-Mexico border, for example, uh, I worked there with the um, U.S.-Mexico Border Health Commission. I also uh, did some work during uh, the Ebola outbreak just in terms of uh, advising on, on what public health law uh, permitted in states with respect to quarantine and so forth. So, so that was my background in, in terms of um, where I had been working in, in the academic and the practical realm before this uh, current pandemic hit us. What kind of historical epidemic precedents can we compare what the US is confronted with now to? And, and how do you think the coronavirus is novel compared to say, as you just discussed, tuberculosis? Well, I think the closest analogy, and uh, a number of commentators have, have brought this up, is the pandemic flu of 1918 and 1919. And the reason that's our closest analogy is uh, that it also seems to have spread through the air. There was great hope for a vaccine. There wasn't a vaccine. Uh, the advice from the Surgeon General was to cover your uh, face with cloth face masks that they uh, urged people to make themselves. Uh, there were uh, fights over whether you could require face masks in certain contexts, but it, it mainly it, it hit in several waves throughout the United States over the course of two years. And so one part of the country could see another part of the country and almost watch the flu advance. Um, and then what's different today, of course, is travel is so much faster. And so we know that, for example, uh, the virus was in the United States long before we suspected that it was. And again, it's just because the speed of travel in this particular virus. The similarities are a great hope for a vaccine and potentially a lot of suffering until then. But here's the caution about the vaccine. They really never got one in time for that flu, um, for the pandemic flu of 1918 and 1919. But you would see some of the public health officials saying, well, we're not going to close schools or we're not going to require face masks because we're putting great stock in the development of a vaccine. And they had good reason to think that because at the turn of the century, uh, there'd been great strides in developing vaccines 
uh, yellow fever, smallpox, on and on. And so I think throughout the 20th century, we, we, we became fairly complacent with this idea that, that a vaccine can save us and that we can get it done quickly. But we should also keep in mind that HIV AIDS, uh, that was an epidemic and a very scary one in the 80s. We began, scientists began work and here at Emory as well, on a vaccine and to this day we still do not have a vaccine for that. So there are some novel diseases that we will not be able to create a vaccine for. It sounds like uh, it's very promising for uh, COVID-19, but you know that's I think one of the distinctions is with a truly novel pandemic that spreads rapidly through the air and seems to spread when people are asymptomatic. That's really from a public health law perspective, that is the hardest, most difficult uh, for a government to control and we're seeing that throughout the world. Especially when we think about vaccine development and even mask wearing regulations, how do you see this epidemic shaping public health policy? It's interesting to, to think about, um, it's, it's not that the United States was not prepared. For the last nearly 15 years, uh, state and local health departments and the federal government have been planning for a pandemic flu of some type. It didn't just hit us out of the blue, although you would think so by looking at the um, initial response. I think one of the things that uh, took a lot of people by surprise was the fact that our national stockpiles were so inadequate and that the ability to have uh, PPE, personal protective equipment for health workers, particularly in assisted living and nursing centers for the elderly, that we just failed miserably on that. And uh, it, in terms of how we could do better next time, I think there will be a recognition uh, that the federal government has got to play a greater role in procuring those supplies and making them available uh, to all these because we had this very unseemly scramble where state governors were just told you're on your own you know get out there and start bidding so you're bidding against each other and at the same time big hospital systems are trying to buy off the market ppe nursing facilities well they got left out of this and, and part of it was resources not being available to them uh, financial and otherwise so i think that in terms of a policy change, there's got to be a recognition about how we can have fundamental parity and safety for the healthcare workers and how much PPE that can require. So those are supply chain issues. There are a number of other ways that I think this will affect policy going forward, but I think the most important one is, is also what surprised me the most about the US response, which is that the CDC has not really been in the lead in the way that you would have expected. And, and I think that as, as other people have also suggested, what we need is to uh, make the CDC and the FDA independent agencies along the lines of the Federal Reserve so that they're just outside of political control. Because I think when you distrust what, what you're being told as a you know, sort of member of the citizenry and you know, of the population, if you distrust what you're being told, that makes public health officials' job that much harder. You know, who do you believe? How do you keep yourself safe? Is this really necessary? So I think there are a number of policy changes that we'll, we'll see going forward. 
Certainly. And, you know, as you mentioned regarding the CDC and states battling for protective equipment, clearly we have a very fractured health delivery system in the United States. Can you kind of discuss this system and why it creates problems for the government when it's trying to protect citizens from epidemics? Let's start with our public health system. That's normally what we think of as our frontline defense against epidemic, any kind of contagious disease. So quite apart from this pandemic and before that, state and local public health agencies were very, very busy um, keeping tuberculosis contained, hepatitis A, other just contagious diseases that are perennially with us. You may even remember measles outbreaks. So they, they, they've always been busy, but they've been extremely fragmented in the sense that um, rather than having one national public health service, as, as many nations do, essentially what we have are 50 states, territories, tribal authorities, and then within states, local health departments. And when you add all those together, there's more than 2,500 of them. And to get them to all coordinate uh, you know, rowing in the same direction, we've always assumed it will be the CDC taking the lead. The other problem with this fragmented public health response is over the last 20 years or so, but certainly after the uh, economic downturn of 2007-2008, many state and local governments cut the budgets of their public health departments at, at the worst possible time, you know, in terms of, of preparation. So they were already understaffed, underfunded. Um, some states are were in a better situation than other states were, but as a general rule, we tend to not think about funding critical things like public health until we have a pandemic. What about after the pandemic? Well, we'll get complacent again because that is sort of what our history has been. But you, so if you set that aside, the public health uh, component is one of the most fragmented among all of the nations because of this division of authority where each state can have its own and, and very often local governments can have their own policy and they have to spend their own money on tests and they have to spend their own money on uh, PPE. That's, that's a, a strange situation. The other side of what we talk about fragmented healthcare is the private side where some people are insured, some people are not. And we know from the economic downturn that accompanied this pandemic that many people lost access to uh, healthcare. And at one point, the federal government had said that the executive branch from the White House, that coronavirus care, testing, and so forth, the federal government would pick up the tab for that. I didn't hear anybody screaming about that socialized medicine, because that's what you have to do, right? First of all, it's an equity issue. We didn't do a good job on that, because if you look at the um, racial inequalities and who this has affected, that's an indictment of our private health care system, which is every bit as fragmented as the public health side. You know, there are any number of problems that result from this fragmentation, but that's why it makes it all the more important to have strong leadership from the CDC. They are the best in the world. You know, there's been silence when you would not expect there to be silence. Uh, and then when you also uh, see that reports that the CDC has put together on recommendations for state and local governments, when those are edited, outside of the scientific agency by the political branch. Uh, again, it doesn't bode well for confidence, but it also leads to a lot of confusion 
just at the time when we all need to be rowing in the same direction. There's been a lot of fake news as far as the pandemic is concerned. It's really difficult when you know, you're supposed to have a centralized body like the CDC giving people guidance on what to do. And that just hasn't quite been the case throughout the pandemic. And I think that's definitely been one of the major issues that's exacerbating the problem right now. And so I want to close with um, asking you about your forthcoming book, Plagues in the Nation. For listeners who are interested in further exploring this topic, can you sort of give us a little bit of a sneak peek rundown of what will be in your book? Sure. This is uh, scheduled for publication early next year at Beacon Press. The premise of the book is that we expect governments to keep us safe from pandemics, and we expect governments to, uh, that it's a, it's a national defense issue in the same way that, you know, we have a military and so forth. And what we can learn from how the U.S. has responded in the past is uh, by looking at various epidemics. And I start with yellow fever in the 19th century. Of course, I take a look at the um, pandemic flu on up through polio, HIV, but we see some commonalities in each of those about each time we're reminded uh, what a terrible hurdle it can be to overcome all of this fragmentation. And um, sometimes we did it better than others, but it's sort of this lack of national guidance, disagreement in scientific community, for example. Um, in any event, we, we see that, we can see a pattern. And so what I want to do then is also chart COVID-19 into that and explaining, first of all, how we got here, how we could have done it better, and that all of these, uh, again, point to the need to have the CDC front and center, in, in my opinion, as an independent agency like the Federal Reserve. Uh, and I think that is necessary to give it respect and also to uh, try to insulate it from the, the political side. So that's what the book will be about. It's, it's looking at government in, in the sense of laws. Were the laws we had on the books helpful here? We had quarantine and isolation laws. We had pandemic preparation. There are a number of uh, legal issues that apply in, uh, as we see with some of the litigation over closings and face masks and, and other um, issues. Was there something about the legal system we should change? And I'm going to suggest in the book that there are a few things that we really need to be paying attention to in the coming years. Great. Well, I just want to thank you so much for your time today. Um, and I know that the listeners really appreciated hearing your expertise again, on epidemics and domestic health law in the United States. So thank you again for your time. Great. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right, listeners. Key areas of consideration from Professor Price that I'd like to highlight are, as Professor Price stated, implementing a national strategy against coronavirus has been difficult across a fractured health delivery and public health system. After the economic downturn of 2007 and 2008, state and local governments cut the budgets of public health departments. Understaffed and underfunded, epidemic management has been subpar as we tend to not think of critical things such as funding public health until we're in the midst of a pandemic. We can also look back at the 1918 influenza crisis as a historical precedent for what the country's facing today. Our legal system has not facilitated epidemic management as constraints, authority, and capacity to deal with the crisis have left the state of public health in shambles. Also, in early 2021, keep an eye out for Dr. Price's forthcoming book, 
plagues in the nation. Additionally, for those who would like to explore her research and present, she is a published contributor to The Atlantic. Now, we're going to transition from discussion of the past into the present, addressing mental health and the pandemic and how people are adapting. Today on the show, I'll be speaking with Dr. Nadine Caslow, Professor and Vice Chair for Faculty Development in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and Director of Postdoctoral Fellowship Program and Professional Psychology at the Emory University School of Medicine. Additionally, she's the Chief Psychologist of the Grady Health System. We'll be discussing the coronavirus pandemic through the lens of psychiatry and public health, including topics such as behavioral health impacts, coping in times of crisis, and cultural change in response to COVID-19. Thank you for taking time to share your expertise, Dr. Caslow. You're welcome. Happy to talk with you about it. Will you provide a brief overview of your career in psychiatry and relevant areas of expertise, such as coping during crises, self-care, and stress? Sure. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences for 30 years now. And I've had a long-standing interest in helping out people who face a lot of different kinds of stress. That's why I really like working at Grady, socioeconomic stress, sociocultural stress, personal stress like mental health problems and, and history of trauma and, and violence. And so I really like doing that and I like doing that from a direct service perspective, from a research perspective, teaching other people policy and advocacy and leadership. So I have a long history of when there have been really difficult things in our city and our community and our country and in the world of, of trying to step forward and helping out and certainly serving as president of the American Psychological Association, the largest organization for psychologists in the world, really helped me get both a national and global platform for doing so. You're clearly an authority in the field of psychology and you have 300 publications, which is incredibly impressive but I was hoping to discuss your most recent publication, Flattening the Emotional Distress Curve, a Behavioral Health Pandemic Response Strategy for COVID-19. There's been discussion of an imminent and long-term mental health crisis in response to the devastating effects of coronavirus. What current behavioral health impacts are being seen in the U.S. right now? Well, there are countless behavioral health impacts, and essentially every one of us is impacted. We are seeing anxiety and panic and stress-related symptoms and depression and increased substance use, alcohol and drugs and other substances. And just this overall sense of pandemic fatigue, Zoom fatigue, and feeling disillusioned and kind of helpless and hopeless and feeling out of control and not having a sense of where we can go in our future. People are just overwhelmed and, and extremely stressed out and whether those are children and all of the issues with virtual schooling or not being able to see their friends or wearing masks or parents or essential workers or healthcare workers, it affects every single one of us. In what ways has the field of psychiatry responded um, in terms of service delivery? I think there's been countless responses. One that is you know, sort of universally true is that people moved to the provision of behavioral health services or mental health services virtually. And people did that pretty quickly. And certainly there's way more virtual uh, mental health services. And I think for many people, that's been really good. It was certainly practical and necessary, but I think it's been very helpful to many people. 
Of course, for other people, it's, they would much rather come to therapy or come for their medications or come to their group in person. But certainly, we're able to provide care to many, many, many more people and people that might not otherwise have access to services. There's also been more hotlines, you know, statewide hotlines, national hotlines, people offering services for low cost or free that might not have been available in the past. So there's a lot more services available. Yes, there's definitely been a transition to telehealth. You know, post-pandemic, people are concerned about the effects that there will be on the population at large. Um, And so historically, why do you think that there has been an underinvestment in addressing people's mental health needs? Do you see this changing post-pandemic? Well, I certainly hope it will change. I think that there's historically in our country and unfortunately around the world been tremendous stigma related to mental health. And that well, it's gotten better, it's, it's pretty pervasive and problematic. And I think that the issue of mental health has probably never been so at the forefront. And partly that's because it's not just vulnerable groups of people or people with mental, you know, history of psychiatric disorders or whatever who are struggling. It's every single person. Every family's been impacted. Every individual's been impacted. We're all struggling. We're all feeling the stress. And so I'm hoping that one silver lining of this pandemic will be greater ongoing attention to behavioral health concerns of people and making more treatments accessible, available, and culturally relevant. So coping during times of crisis, as you mentioned, is on everybody's mind right now. It's a pervasive part of everyday life. And so your publication, Flattening the Emotional Distress Curve, identifies six phases of a behavioral health pandemic response strategy. I was wondering if you could discuss these. Sure. You know, as soon as sort of COVID hit our community, we launched a program called the Caring Communities Initiative. And that was really initially designed to provide behavioral health services defined very broadly to healthcare workers on the front lines in our health systems here um, in the Emory system through Emory Healthcare, through Grady, through Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. And then that's expanded outward nationally and globally in terms of attending to the behavioral health needs of healthcare workers. And more generally, we've also expanded it to the the general population. So we were doing a, a lot of frontline work and it became clear to us that there was so much focus on the public health response to this pandemic and both in terms of prevention and response and that that was and remains critically important, but that there are many ways in which behavioral health expertise can be brought to bear that would really make potentially a very big difference in a lot of different ways. One way just has to do with even preventing things from happening. And second way is, you know, helping people uh, respond, take care of themselves and other people and really take care of things very responsibly. And other things have to do with coping with the, the negative effects short term and downstream. So there's lots of different ways in which we felt that we could be helpful. And so we looked across what we knew already about responding to pandemics and preparing for them from a public health perspective. And 
trying to add a behavioral health lens. And so we started with sort of the pre-planning phase and the response readiness phase. And those are really the phases before you even get to the pandemic itself. I think if you look across cultures and countries, a variety of different things were done to really think about what, what could happen to prepare people. And so this has to do with when you really identify maybe that there's a new virus and that you monitor for the pandemic threat potential. And so that's sort of the pre-planning phase. And I think if we all look back, we had a lot more evidence that there's a lot more we could have done starting late last fall. But I think we all had this notion, incorrectly so, that it really wasn't necessary. The next phase is the response readiness phase. And this is when we sort of ramp up efforts to control the outbreak. So when we see, when we recognize that there could be greater likelihood for viral transmission, and so we ramp up our efforts to control the outbreak. This is before there even is much of an outbreak. Move to the next phase, which is the response mobilization phase. And in the response mobilization phase, we're sort of initiating our activities. And we start to see this sort of spread of a virus and sort of we're going to sort of move towards what we could refer to as a pandemic wave. And then during this point, there's a lot of surveillance to figure out where to implement strategies to reduce risk and to mitigate against risk, how to do that, and really a lot of uh, case-based efforts to control the virus. And so that would be, that would have been in the very, in Atlanta, in the very early weeks, say in, in March. We then go to the phase, what's called the acceleration phase, when we're thinking in general about pandemics, where there's, it really increases, the number of cases increase a lot. And in our mind, that's where we really need to actively intervene. So prior to this, we were doing prevention, you know, sort of distant prevention and more close prevention, and now we're getting to active intervention. I would argue that we are very much sort of still in that phase in many ways, although we're hoping that we're starting to see a downward trajectory or deceleration of this virus, but I think it's unclear and we all see that there could be second waves. And so in that process of the deceleration, there needs to be what we call a continuation of behavioral health efforts, where you really need to keep monitoring things, we need to keep intervening, we need to decide whether we have to ramp up or we can slowly ramp down our efforts to mitigate. And then finally, we get to the phase where you see an amelioration. And obviously, that's going to take a while before we experience that, where it's really declining and things are really reducing a lot. And so when that happens, we can sort of prepare again so that there's low pandemic infection rates. And really what we want to do is prepare for a new outbreak or potentially another virus. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and, and insight. I think this will be incredibly beneficial for listeners. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Key areas of consideration from Dr. Caslow that I'd like to highlight include the fact that there's been a mental health crisis in response to the devastating effects of coronavirus. Virtually every one of us is being impacted right now. 
we are seeing increased levels of anxiety, panic, stress, and an overall sense of pandemic fatigue and disillusionment. Psychiatrists and public health professionals have responded to this crisis in a variety of ways. The transition to virtual health delivery happened quickly, making mental health care provision practical and accessible. The issue of mental health has never been so at the forefront of society. We are all struggling to cope during these uncertain times. Dr. Caslow hopes one silver lining of the pandemic is that there will be more attention to making treatment accessible, available, less stigmatized, and more culturally relevant. Looking forward, we can analyze what's happening now on the front lines and what we can learn for the next pandemic, such as helping people take care of themselves and supporting healthy coping. We're currently in what Dr. Caslow calls the acceleration phase as of October 21st, 2020. We're looking forward to an amelioration phase where cases will decline and we can prepare for the next pandemic. Prevention methods that Dr. Caslow and colleagues recommend include increased monitoring for threat potential, response readiness in ramping up efforts to control virus spread, and increasing surveillance through case-based efforts to control the virus. These stages transition us well into a quick segment featuring Dr. Max Lau of Rollins School of Public Health as he discusses his research on current superspreading events. Max Lau is an assistant professor at the Rollins School of Public Health in Biostatistics and Bioinformatics, whose research interests include disease ecology and infectious disease dynamics. His recent publication, Characterizing Superspreading Events and Age-Specific Infectiousness of COVID-19 Transmission in Georgia, USA, discovered evidence of superspreading and that 2% of COVID-19 patients could be the cause of 20% of new infections. Dr. Lau and his team statistically synthesized multiple valuable data streams, including surveillance data and mobility data. They found that age is an important factor in the transmission of the virus. The results improved our understanding of the natural history of COVID-19 and allows for important implications to be made in designing optimal control measures as we move forward. Dr. Lau will discuss the transmission dynamics of COVID-19, what superspreading is, and age as an important factor to virus transmission. Thank you for being on the show today, Dr. Lau. Will you provide a brief introduction and background of your work with public health and biostatistics? Yes, so I'm a statistical modeler of infectious disease dynamic. So I work on I work on many diseases, including like flu, influenza, uh, measles, Ebola, and more recently COVID nineteen. And trying to understand how the virus transmit and what's the best way to control them. Great. Um, will you discuss your recent research into COVID nineteen and the super spreading events as a cause for exacerbating the disease? Yeah, sure. Uh, we've been working with uh, GTPH, the Georgia Department of Public Health, and trying to understand in general the transmission dynamic of COVID nineteen. So what we find is that about two percent of uh, cases actually are responsible for about twenty two percent, twenty percent of uh, all the infections. So that we call super spreading event, so which means a small amount of cases actually infecting a large proportion of the cases. And could you, for listeners who may be unfamiliar with disease terminology, differentiate between what super spreading is and kind of what second waves are or how they're related? So I think most of people now are familiar with the term so-called reproductive number, especially during the early state of the outbreak. So when we say reproductive number, we were saying that we're referring to the average number, the number of average cases, a typical case we infect. 
So it's, it's only an average measure. But actually, each case infect differently. So if there are certain people actually infect much more person than a typical person, than a typical case, then we will call these people are causing super spreading event. So okay. this is the way we characterize it was the super spreading event. Could you also provide some more background information for those who are unfamiliar about how the virus spreads? Because clearly it can spread differently based on super spreading, but maybe just some basics on COVID-19 spread. Yeah, uh, I think the evidence so far suggests that COVID-19 is being transmitted by droplets, so respiratory droplets. But there are also some evidence start to emerge say that it's possible that it is also airborne, but we are not sure yet. So, so far, what we can say is that it's sure that we are sure that uh, COVID-19 is being transmitted through the big droplets, basically. And along the lines of, of transmission, your recent research demonstrates that young people are really contributing greatly to COVID-19 transmission and super spreading. Why do you think this is? For one thing is that younger people tend to be more socially active, so they are more contact with other groups. So that's why we were seeing that from the, our analysis, we're seeing that the younger group tend to be more infectious. Certainly. So I remember back in August, the World Health Organization warned that young people are going to be one of the primary drivers of the spread of the novel coronavirus. So clearly, young people have a very important role in containing the outbreak through preventative measures. What kind of recommendations can you make for young people in following guidelines? Because there's certainly a balance to be had between social distancing and mask wearing. Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, it's very important to everyone to realize that anyone can be a can be causing super spreading event. It's not just the younger one or the older one. So from a from a paper, we were saying that it's the behavior is probably the most important factor to consider. So if you if you're not mindful enough, you could be the super spreader. So I think the the first thing we have to do is to let the young people realize that the importance of maintaining social distancing and wearing masks in the public. So one thing is on education. And so another thing is, is really so to let everyone know that it's really your own behavior that would be contributing to this to transmission of COVID-19. Certainly. Well, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you. Good luck with that. All right, listeners, here's a quick review of today's show. Max Lau discussed the transmission dynamics of the novel coronavirus, as well as super spreading events, the relationship between age and virus spread, and closed with recommendations for mitigating the spread of the novel coronavirus. Dr. Lau's research found that young people are the main drivers of superspreading. See the podcast description for a link to his recent study. If you or someone you know is sick, stay at home and self-isolate. People who are older or have certain underlying medical conditions are at a higher risk of getting really sick from COVID. Here's a quick reminder of the CDC's most important recommendations to slow the spread of the virus. Wear a mask. Stay at least six feet away from others who don't live with you, especially in crowded areas. And wash your hands with soap and water for 20 seconds, or use hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol. Additionally, Polly Price discussed themes on public health law and the history of epidemics, honing in on historical epidemic precedents in the U.S., government pandemic response and health policy, and issues regarding healthcare delivery in a decentralized health system. You may be asking, what are the legal limits of the U.S. government in taking actions during a health emergency? Well, the federal government derives its authority for isolation and quarantine from the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. However, 
as outlined by the National Conference of State Legislatures, emergency health laws vary by state, and this is why pandemic response has been fractured and inadequate throughout the U.S. Professor Price discussed the Spanish flu pandemic as a historical precedent for the novel coronavirus in the U.S. The federal government did not invoke the Commerce Clause during that pandemic from 1918 to 1919, and the pandemic ended up killing an estimated 40 million people worldwide, including 675,000 Americans. Moving forward, a more coordinated pandemic response must be taken to mitigate and control the virus. Lastly, Nadine Kasler discussed the ongoing mental health crisis in response to the pandemic, changes within the field of psychiatric care and health delivery due to the pandemic, and improved prevention methods that will allow us to better tackle future pandemics. Behavioral health expertise can help ensure a more comprehensive, effective pandemic response that facilitates the flattening of the curve of disease spread along with the corresponding emotional distress curve. Dr. Kessel's recent publication, Flattening the Emotional Distress Curve, highlights the importance of integrating behavioral health expertise into public health responses to pandemics because behavioral health specialists can optimize pandemic response related to leadership, prevention, education, service, research, and even advocacy. The pandemic has put incredible stress on individuals and families. When dealing with fear, isolation, and anxiety, it's important to practice healthy coping mechanisms. In the podcast description, you can find links to CDC and HHS websites that share resources for coping right now. Each guest today shared their expertise about COVID and its implications on our daily lives. For those interested in further exploring the topics discussed, see the podcast description for links to studies, ongoing research, and resources mentioned throughout the show. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, stay safe, stay sane, and stay well. All the best, Kat.